The future of Bangladesh depends on people like you. We are a group of friends who left Dhaka in the early 80s and been working in strategic consulting, international development, diplomatic services, and even one of us built a very large business. Now we want to bring something back to Bangladesh. We want to bring through this platform, through this podcast, our network, our knowledge, and work with you together to shape the future of Bangladesh. Today in all conversations the elephant in the room is coronavirus. Our first guest is the country director of CDC in Bangladesh, Dr. Michael Friedman. This is first of a three-part series where Michael discusses everything you may want to know about coronavirus but afraid to ask. Let's welcome Dr. Michael Friedman. Yeah, so so thanks for the invitation and thanks for the honor of being your first interviewee. I uh, really appreciate that. <laughs> so just one thing just to clarify, I think you know, I have a long experience working for CDC and I'm happy to to provide some some insights and I've obviously done interviews before and done lots of presentations, so I, I'm comfortable talking on on this and other subjects. The only thing is I, you know, most of my experience with COVID and what I'm comfortable talking about is really the Bangladesh experience. And I mean, obviously, I understand the global science, you know, I'm trying as much as I can and, and keeping up with global policy, but I am, you know, I'm, I'm not the right person if you want, you know, like the latest thinking at what CDC is doing in the U.S. and things like that, because I'm, I'm based in Bangladesh, right? I'm not really following all the details of what's happening in the U.S. But if you want a perspective of what's happening in Asia and especially a country like like Bangladesh or India or this kind of this kind of context, then I'm probably the right person for you to talk to. So it just depends. Absolutely, that's what we are looking for, actually. Exactly, um, the Bangladesh experience in, is first and foremost in our mind as well. Yeah, so I, I'm happy. I probably know as much about what's going on in Bangladesh as anyone does. I mean, I, obviously there are others in the country that do as well, but I, I, I certainly have spent a lot of time the last four months keeping in you know, being involved in the activities, spending time in the field, you know, meeting with key officials and obviously keeping up on the global science and experience. So, you know, putting it all together, I'd be happy to try to answer some questions or make an interesting session for you. That would be fantastic. Why don't we start with your background? How did you end up in Dhaka? <laughs> uh, and how far or how long have you been in Dhaka? And tell us a little bit about your background. So I'm Dr. Michael Friedman. I'm a, I'm a country director for the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Bangladesh, also just commonly referred to as the country director for CDC. I am a U.S. Public Health Service officer, so I'm a captain and the naval captain in the U.S. Public Health Service. It's one of the ways in which CDC hires people. It's not the only way, but it's it's one kind of a recruitment and employment way that it's being that it's done. This is something I joined 24 years ago, actually. I didn't, at the time, I joined a program called the Epidemic Intelligence Service, EIS program, as, the, as it's also commonly referred to. And it's a two-year fellowship that trains young professionals, mostly physicians at the time, but now it's opened up to other professionals on kind of disease outbreak, you know, field epidemiology and the basics of public health practice. So I joined that program for two years at CDC, 
And I never really thought that I would stay with the federal government this long, but I, uh, I have. And it's been an re- immensely rewarding career and a very interesting career after those first two years. So before I joined CDC, I was uh, trained as an internal medicine doctor and a pediatrician, board certified in both internal medicine and pediatrics. So I have a pretty strong clinical background, even though most of my career has been spent on uh, public health issues and not in clinical practice. But I still feel like I use my clinical skills in a lot of my decision making and work I do, especially here now in COVID. I think I'm using a lot of those skills actually the last four months in terms of uh, the different roles that I play here. Over my 24 years, I spent 22 of those years with CDC, including those two years in the fellowship program. And I spent two years, a little more than two years in the Indian Health Service or or the Native American Health Service, uh, as it's, uh, you know, should be known as. And that was a really unique experience in New Mexico. It was a job where I was a clinician as well as a public health advisor to the local Zuni tribe. So that was a very rewarding and interesting couple of years out there as well. And the rest of it, I said, as I spent at CDC, I spent about half of my career domestically working on asthma, air pollution, and obesity issues and some other, you know, other issues like that that were kind of key pressing issues in the U.S. back in the late 1990s and early 2000s and still continue to be an issue in parts of the U.S. Maybe air pollution has gotten a lot better in the U.S., but the other issues are still very much public health issues. And then I spent about half of my career in overseas, first working on PEPFAR, which is the HIV program that CDC and USAID and other parts of the U.S. government is implementing. That's a program on uh, HIV and AIDS uh, relief across the world. I focused my effort in India. So I was in India for four years for that program. And then I worked on PEPFAR as well, another four years, but at headquarters back in Atlanta, trying to focus on how to integrate the HIV funding and efforts into building stronger health systems. So in that job, I did a lot of thinking about human resources for health and developing better governance and information systems and other ways to kind of look at how we can tackle HIV through the lens of improving health systems in general. And then I spent three years in Indonesia on loan to WHO. So I actually worked for WHO for three years, but I was a CDC employee. So we, we do this occasionally where we go on loan to other organizations like the World Bank or, or WHO is uh, more common. And so I spent three years there. During those three years, I actually also deployed to Sierra Leone during the Ebola, 2014 Ebola outbreak. So I was in Sierra Leone for about two months in uh, September and October of 2014. So at the peak of the outbreak in Sierra Leone, I was there as the WHO uh, lead for uh, surveillance and an outbreak response and laboratory support. So it was a it was a very interesting and unique experience and certainly has helped me in this uh, COVID crisis as well. And then finally, after I finished there, I went back to back to Indonesia for a while. And then when I finished up in Indonesia, I actually went back to Sierra Leone and helped at the end of the outbreak and for the recovery period. So I worked about a, about a year and a half, two years in Sierra Leone, then helping the country recover and rebuild its health system, which was uh, gave me another fascinating look at the country and the aftermath of a, of a big crisis. And clearly during that year and a half, I got to know the country much better. 
And then finally, after that, I came to uh, Bangladesh. And I've been here for three years. I arrived in Bangladesh about, I think it was about two or three days before the Rohingya crisis started. So I uh, immediately jumped in and got uh, pretty busy with that crisis. And of course, with a lot of other things that are happening in Bangladesh, with 170 million people. It's a very busy country and a busy, very busy country program. So that's, that's kind of my background with CDC. Before I joined CDC, I, I did my med- medical school training in Miami, Florida. I did my residency program at University of Chicago. And my wife and I volunteered and worked in Bihar, India for a year in 1994, 1995 in a, in a very remote section of the state and the country, just doing medical service and trying to build some public health programs there. So that kind of got me interested in public health probably more than, more than anything. So that's my, that that's my story. Pretty interesting career I think I've had. I've been very fortunate. I have three kids and a wife. My wife is an infectious disease doctor in Singapore. So there's a lot of flying back and forth between Bangladesh and Singapore, except for during this COVID period. So I unfortunately haven't seen my family in the last four months. It's a little bit of one of the unfortunate side effects of this outbreak. And my kids are all in college, or, or two of them are in college. I have three children. Two of them are in college. One just graduated. So I have one that just graduated and is starting his job today. First job is starting today. Terrific. Now, I was going to say that, you know, your breadth of experience is truly amazing, covering so many different geographies. And now in Bangladesh, you bring that perspective as well. Really terrific. So let's get started with our set of questions that we'd like to explore with you in terms of what our current understanding is about COVID-19. Can you share with our audience as to what we know for facts, meaning no question about them in terms of how they spread, their infectiousness, their effect on health, both short-term and long-term? So let's start with that. So thanks. What you asked is a great question. So I, I, in fact, when I usually give a talk or talk to people about COVID, I usually lump it into two categories, what we know and what we don't know. And, and unfortunately, what we don't know is still a very large category. But let's start with what we do know. We know, number one, that this is a novel virus. This is a virus that we have not, we generally have had little experience with. We've had other coronaviruses that have affected other parts of the world. You know, we know of SARS and, and MERS and, and other common coronavirus colds. But this particular coronavirus is, is new. We know that this virus, like many viruses, has a very wide spectrum of illness and presentation. It can be ranged from asymptomatic all the way, to, fortunately, to death, and commonly affects both the vascular system and the lung system in terms of its, where it has its most profound effects in terms of our body. We know this at, at this stage. And I think originally we thought it was mostly a lung virus, but over time, I think we realized that this is a virus that has a tremendous impact on on blood vessels as well, and affects the ability of our blood to clot, as well as uh, increases the kind of the swelling and inflammation of blood vessels, which can then cause damage both in the lungs and outside the lungs as well. We also know that this virus tends to affect people worse as they get older and as they have uh, more underlying health conditions. That is not always true for all viruses, but it's true for this one. So as, as your age increases, as the number of comorbidities you have increases, the likelihood that you're going to have a severe bout or likely die of this disease increases. 
So we know that those under the age of 50, the chances of, of uh, mortality rates are probably less than 1.1% even. You know, you know, it varies, I think, from country to country and what, what data you read. But at the end of the day, it's probably less than one per thousand. Whereas when you want you to get above the age of 70 or 75, you get death rates that can be easily above 10%. So you can see that's a huge difference based on age. And like I said, not all viruses act this way. It's a, it's a relatively unique and it's age distribution. We also know that this virus is clearly transmissible from human to human. I, you know, I think early in January, there was some confusion about that, but that quickly, I think, became dispelled and became pretty obvious that this thing was spreading. Now we know a lot more about its spread. We know that it can spread by droplets, which means that these are virus particles that attach to very small, you know, water molecules or other molecules that can, that can be shed during your breathing and your talking or when you cough or when you sneeze. These kind of bigger particles, they're bigger because the viral particles are small, but the actual particles that they're attached to are a little bit bigger. They tend not to drift too far in the air. They tend to fall anywhere between one and, and five feet from a person. And that's why we originally said that you should, you know, social distance and keep within uh, six feet of other people. Now we are realizing that this virus can also attach to smaller particles that allow it to be airborne a little bit longer than what we thought and therefore transmit a little bit further in distance than what we thought. But the degree in terms of which how much of this happens and how risky those particles are is still un unclear. I mean, this is not an easy science to, to really understand and investigate. We can do this by looking at epidemiologic data and we can look at it by doing scientific experiments, you know, laboratory experiments, looking at, aer at aerosol particles, things like that. I am not an expert in the latter. I don't, I don't know that much about the, you know, the scientific studies of aerosol patterns and, and spatial, you know, flow of air and stuff like that. I know a lot about, a lot about epidemiology and the, the way that we look at risk in terms of, you know, looking at risk factors and, and what people kind of often self-describe as the reasons why they may or may not have gotten infected. So from that data, we also know that the, that the disease can spread more than five or six feet, but we also know that from that data that it's not that common to get the disease if you're that far away from people as well. We hear the term viral load. You know, what does that mean? You know, how much of this viral load do you have to get exposed to before it becomes, you know, somebody gets infected? So it's a very good question, and and this is taken from our understanding of other viruses and stuff. So, so I think the audience and yourself as well, all of us, need to really take a step back and realize that our understanding of viruses and different, even bacteria, is evolving over time. And I, and I would say, in my career, you know, I started medical school in 1987, and you know, did most of my training then in the late 80s and early 90s in terms of uh, my residency and everything. Our, our understanding then compared to now has dramatically improved. And so our understanding now till the next 20 years is also going to dramatically improve. So we, we are still in a process of understanding these things. The HIV pandemic has really helped us understand viruses the way we never understood them before. A lot of what we're talking about in terms of understanding COVID comes from the fact that we have intensely studied diseases like HIV 
over the last 30 years and invested so much money in understanding our immune system, understanding, you know, different aspects of viruses and how they mutate. And also our understanding of influenza. There's also been a lot of research and effort into influenza. So I think you, I think the, the audience need to realize that we know as much as we put our effort into. So we put a lot of effort into HIV. We put a lot of effort into influenza in terms of understanding these kind of diseases. And now we come around with another virus that we know something about. But a lot of what we know is based on those other diseases. I mean, even though they're completely different viruses. And so some people would say you shouldn't even compare. The reality is that we do compare because we, we, we learn a lot about the general concepts of virology from from other other viruses, such as you know, such as the two I just mentioned, as long as well as measles and smallpox and you know chickenpox and all the other viruses that, that we've studied over the years. So, having said all that, the concept of viral load comes from HIV mostly. Now, there might be some virologists that said we we use that term before HIV, but as far as I understand, that's really the first time we really kind of mass level started using the term viral load. And in, that's because in HIV, the amount of virus that is in your bloodstream or that you have at that current time really predicts the transmissibility of HIV. So in HIV, for example, your viral load is highest in the first three to four weeks of your infection before most people even have any idea that they have HIV. That's when you're most infectious. And then, of course, your viral load drops dramatically. You have a long period in HIV where you don't have any, any very, very low levels of virus, and your transmissibility is actually pretty low. And then when you get start getting sick with AIDS toward the end of the illness, your viral load starts to increase again. So from HIV, we've learned a lot about how HIV transmits and how we can try to prevent transmission you know, from, from that understanding. So... From that, people have kind of surmised that with this, with this coronavirus, that the same thing might be true, that, you know, maybe the, maybe the, the, the quantity of virus really predicts how easily it's spread or not. And the truth is, we don't really know that yet. I mean, there are probably, there are some studies that suggest that the amount of viral load or the, 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 the PCR test in terms of how much virus is contained in the sample that you that you detect and, and test in the laboratory, there seems to be some correlation with that and maybe, you know, how infectious you might be. But that data is very preliminary and, and not very and not very good in terms of fully understanding it. So we don't really necessarily know. We also would say that, you know, just by testing one sample in your in your nose or your back of your throat and how much virus is in that one sample may or may not be an accurate predictor of how much virus you really have. And then the third thing is to know that, you know, how much virus you spew out of your mouth or your nose when you're talking or when you're coughing or when you're sneezing or whatever it is that you're doing, that also is going to vary by the person and how loud they are, how hard they cough, you know, all of those other factors. So there's so many factors that are, play a role in this whole transmissibility. Yeah, this is very helpful, Michael. Now, my next question would be around, you know, what we do with this information, you know, as we think about social distancing and the like, give us a sense of how this works. You know, let's say I breathe an aerosol or, or a droplet. Does it immediately become part of my body or my immune system can neutralize it up to a point? That's what I meant by viral load in the beginning, the inception of the 
uh, or you know when the virus lands into my body, you know a single virus is good enough for it to propagate into my body, or is there a minimum threshold that you need to exceed before the virus becomes part of your body, or you know the immune system cannot simply handle it? So, so this is a good question, and, and I, I think the, the way you're thinking is actually a very appropriate way of thinking about health and disease. And we know this is true for other diseases, like, for example, you know, rotavirus or cholera. We know that or salmonella. If you get certain bugs from eating food, we know that the, the more quantity of the toxin or the bacteria that you, you ingest, the more likely that the next day or the day after that, you're going to end up with very severe diarrhea or or vomiting or whatever other symptoms you're going to end up with. But we know that's definitely true for a lot of GI illnesses, that the quantity of your ingestion really makes a big difference in terms of whether you get sick or how sick you get. When it comes to respiratory viruses, we know a lot less. We're really not quite sure because it's very hard to measure this, right? I mean, it's not an easy thing to measure in terms of how much virus actually got into your system and, you know, what's the threshold. So I would say from my standpoint, I don't know the answer to that question. However, I would say that I, that I would guess at least, I would surmise that it would vary from person to person and that clearly the more virus that you're exposed to, the more likely it's going to get into your cells and start to replicate. But I can't really tell you what the threshold level would be for this, necessarily for this virus. And whether or not there is kind of a dose-dependent curve, meaning that the more you're exposed to, the sicker you're going to get. Or if you're exposed to a small amount, then you're not going to get as sick. That we don't really know from this necessarily for this disease. But the basic mechanism is like you said, the basic mechanism is viruses. The virus will enter into your nose or your throat, and it will attach to your, to your cells in, in your nose or, or your epithelial cells in your nose or throat, in the back of your throat. And that will start the process of the virus being kind of, will try to, viruses in general can't live on the outside. So they have to go in, intracell, they have to go into a cell. So they'll toro into a cell and they'll start to then infect the cell and try to replicate itself and, and spread to other cells. And then your immune system will come and try to stop that from happening, right? And if there's immunity, your immune system knows that this virus has been around before, it will then amount of usually a pretty effective response and clear the virus before you're able to develop any symptoms or get sick. That's, that's obviously what we call immunity. But, you know, in this disease, because it's a new disease, that kind of pre-existing immunity we don't think exists. But I would say again, this is an area where we're not 100% sure. We don't, we don't know that necessarily 100% of people are susceptible to this virus. We don't know if there's genetic disposition, there's certain genes that people might have that make them less susceptible to this. We don't know if some people have cross immunity from other viruses that give them some degree of immunity against this virus, not 100% immunity, but maybe they get partial immunity. We really don't understand a lot of these things yet. This is a new virus, so we, we have a lot still to learn. Yeah, clear. What advice would you give to our audience in terms of what they need to do based on what we understand today, as you outlined, you know, our current understanding of how it spreads and what it does to our body? Well, on a simple level, the biggest things you can do is, one is, is be smart. 
And BSMART, I mean, you have to know a little bit about how this disease spreads and how, what are the easiest ways to protect yourself. And really, the answer to that is, is a couple of very simple things. One is wear a mask anytime that you're in a situation where you might be exposed to people or aerosols that you're not aware of or you're not you're not comfortable with. So that could mean if you're in a room, you enter a room and there's uh, other people in the room, you know, you've got to flip the uh, stick your mask on. If you enter into an elevator, you go into a restaurant, you you know, even walking outside and you see a crowd of people, you know, it's always good to just put your mask on. Now a mask is pretty effective, depends on the type of mask you're wearing, but in general Masks are pretty pretty helpful if you're wearing a decent mask and you wear it properly. It tends to, to, to protect most people pretty well. The second thing you can do is just keep a distance from people. I, I talked about the six-feet rule, the two-meter rule, which is still a generally a good indicator. If you're, if you're beyond six feet from someone, the chances of getting this virus from them definitely decreases significantly. Now, I can't say that if you're nine feet from someone, you're going to be 100% safe or not. I mean, that's something we don't really know. And if you don't want to take any chances, I wouldn't take a chance and say, well, nine feet's enough. Enough. Dr. Friedman said nine feet's fine. And so, you know, I'm going to take my mask off at nine feet. I, I don't think we know that for sure. But the general rule of about six feet, about two meters away from other people is a good general indicator. And we also know that being outside is definitely less risky than being inside. So I also look at the six feet rule in terms of my inside or my outside and how good is the ventilation in a room of it. So there's a lot of these factors that you have to kind of factor in when you're trying to make these decisions. But if you don't want to think that hard, just wear a mask. You know, that's the easiest thing to do. But it doesn't mean just because you're wearing a mask, you should get within six inches of someone. I mean, that's still going to be somewhat risky. So the best thing is some combination of the two things I just mentioned. And then the third thing is washing your hands. I really want to emphasize this because I think people often forget this, that most respiratory viruses spread through dirty hands. People cough into their hands or they sneeze into their hands or they wipe their face. Then they shake hands with someone or touch something. Another person comes by, either has shaken hands with someone or touches the same thing, and then they touch their mouth accidentally. And if you watch people, you'll notice that some people touch their mouth a lot accidentally. And incidentally, they won't even notice that they're touching their mouth, but people do it. And the, the best way to prevent this type of transmission is two things. One is break the habit of touching your mouth, which is easier said than done. I'm, I happen to be someone who touches my face a lot when I'm talking or sitting around when I'm bored, especially when I'm bored. And so I'm really trying to work very hard at not doing that. So that's one thing you can do. And the second thing you can do is just wash your hands frequently. Every time you touch something, every time you enter a space, every time you think you're going to eat something or do anything, just wash your hands. That could be with soap and water, or that can be with, you know, some alcohol gel. I think either one works fine in terms of this process. And I would say the third thing you can do in terms of that is just don't touch things that you don't necessarily need to. Uh, one of the biggest lessons I learned when I was in Sierra Leone during Ebola was the fact that the easiest way for me to prevent myself from getting Ebola was not to touch things. You know, it was always, I mean, Ebola is a very scary disease. And it's not that transmissible, but you still, you know, it's, a, it's 50%, 60% deadly. So you don't really want to take any chances with a disease like that. And so you just 
best thing was when I was in places that I didn't know who was there and I don't know who made there may have been some other sick people there before or you don't even know who's been there. You just the idea was just don't touch anything. Don't touch doorknobs. You know, don't touch the back of a chair. Don't touch your friend. Don't touch a piece of paper or a pen if you don't need to. You know, basically just keep your hands in your pocket as much as you can. And so that was one of the lessons I learned from Ebola was just don't just touch a lot less things than you need to. And when I when I watch people, and, and if you guys do this yourself after listening to this, you know, you'll notice people touch a lot of things that they don't need to, you know, and that's maybe that's a human habit that we have. But that's also another another thing that we could try to change. So those are some of the basic recommendations in terms of how to protect yourself. Very well put, Michael. Thank you for the I have a question, guidance. though. Yes, May go I, ahead. Yeah, Michael, I was just wondering, is there a cumulative effect? I mean, coming back to that virus, viral load issue. So I got exposed a bit. That was not enough. Then I had another exposure. Eventually, I reach a threshold. Then sort of my immune system can't handle it anymore. Is there a concept like that? or is So I can't say definitively no to the question, but I would say that the concept is probably not correct. I mean, I would say that our understanding of, of transmission of disease and, and uh, viruses is that 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 kind of you know buildup of virus is unlikely, and the reason I say that is because when when a virus you know enters your throat or your or you know you're exposed to it, it's a it's a one time temporary thing, and within an hour that virus is either into your body or it's or it's gone. So when you get exposed exposed again, you know five hours later or the next day, it's a completely new experience. Ah, okay, okay. So these incidences don't sort of add up, so they. Uh, different attacks that happen and if your body could cope it and then you survive so wait for the next one okay good thank you i hope you enjoyed today's show see you next time on a similar topic please feel free to leave your comments behind and suggestion what topic we might cover next thank you